Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 58, The Paradise Syndrome. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm K-N. K-N. I'm K-N? And tell me, K-N, are you a god? Could be. Yeah, the funny thing is I, I, uh, I, I can't remember. Uh, it should come back to me, though. Tell you what. Uh, while I wait for that, why don't you um, explain what's going on? Well, Ken, I can't explain exactly what's going on, but I can explain that this is Mission Log, and we are the show that examines every episode of Star Trek in order, looking for the morals, meanings, and messages. Oh, that's right. It's all come back to me now. I'm kind of sorry about the people who became important to me all of a sudden, and then I lost all of a sudden, but uh, yeah, everything else seems pretty good. Well, that's the downside of a Vulcan mind fusion now, isn't it? <laughs> I guess it might be. And it is, of course, the downside of the Paradise Syndrome. Sadly, not mentioned at all in this episode. It was called the Tahiti Syndrome, according to, uh, according to one uh, Leonard Bones McCoy. Uh, the Paradise Syndrome, though, yeah, I mean, they sort of explain right in the middle of the show what it is. But it's that whole thing where, and you know, I got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I am a victim of this every time I go on vacation. I actually hate going on vacation because then I come back and it's like, oh, look, nobody's taking out the trash but me. (laughs) I get the Paradise Syndrome or the Tahiti Syndrome anytime except with me. The Tahiti Syndrome is, you know, sometimes the San Francisco Syndrome, uh, sometimes the Nashville, Tennessee Syndrome, basically any place, you know, that's not home. Well, which, you, which may say something about my home now that I think about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, things are going to be great whenever we have an episode of Star Trek with the word paradise in the title. So uh, I've been looking forward to this one for sure. Yeah. So one of the things I do remember that we do every week, well, mm-hmm. I, I say we. Yeah. Uh, trivia. Oh, hey. Yeah, that's uh, that would be me. And I don't even need the godlike powers to do the trivia. Uh, this week's trivia for the Paradise Syndrome, uh, we want to start out by mentioning the writer, uh, Margaret Armin. Now, she was only one of two women writers uh, for the first couple of seasons, uh, two and a half seasons of Star Trek, the original series. She also wrote The Gamesters of Triskelion and uh, an episode that we will be seeing coming up, The Cloudminders. She went on to write two episodes of Star Trek, the animated series. And uh, this week for our podcast, we have a Discovered Doc, which is an article, an interview with Margaret Armin from Starlog magazine in 1987. Um, Some of the interesting tidbits from that, she mentions how this episode, Paradise Syndrome, she assumes must have been approved and uh, pushed into production by Gene Roddenberry. Uh, she's full of praise for him, but she says that the season three producer, uh, Fred Freiberger, was less interested in shows that did not have as much action in them. And this is not, uh, not an episode that is heavy on action. Um, so she assumes that it is Gene who, in fact, was the champion for this episode. Hey, Ken, uh, let's go down to the fishing hole. Uh, You may recognize that the location that they used for uh, the Paradise Syndrome is indeed from the opening of the Andy Griffith show. That is, Uh, is, wait, wait, really? Yeah, it absolutely is. That is crazy. They went all the way to North Carolina to shoot like five minutes. Oh, but see, it's actually not North Carolina. It's the magic of Hollywood. That is Franklin Canyon Reservoir. And that's in uh, Franklin Park, which is near Beverly Hills. So a hop, skip, and a jump from Paramount Studios. Wow. Andy Griffith lied to me. <laughs> he did. And I'm afraid it wouldn't be the last time. Um, we also want to mention two of the guest stars on this episode. Sabrina Scharf, who plays uh, Miramani. She was a Playboy bunny in one of the clubs. And uh, she ran for California Senate in 1976. Uh, she has no more acting credits after 1975. And we also want to mention Rudy Solari. He played Salish, 
Uh, he was an acting instructor at UCLA. He opened his own theater in Beverly Hills called the Solari Theater. Now it's called the Cannon Theater. And uh, it was converted from an old movie house. One of the shows that he produced there uh, before his death in 1991 was called Otherwise Engaged, and it starred William Shatner. They did that in 1978. If there's one thing Captain Kirk hasn't liked in the past, it's anything having anything to do with paradise. So what happens when he finds a paradise of his own? Prologue. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to a planet that is just beautiful, almost Eden-like, if you will. There's even a tribe of Native Americans living there. Hmm. The landing party won't interfere, though. They're just here to look around and then get back to the Enterprise to try to deflect an asteroid that will otherwise wipe that primitive civilization right out of existence. There is an interesting centerpiece to the whole place we should mention, a giant obelisk which defies scanning or interpretation from the alien glyphs on the side. Kirk goes in for a closer look, but just as he opens his communicator to contact the ship, a trapdoor opens beneath him and he tumbles into a chamber below the obelisk. There's computer equipment all around, and just as he gains his footing, one of those computers zaps him in the face with electricity. Not cool. Act 1. Not even Spock can figure out how to get into the obelisk, and he tells McCoy that they had better just get back to the ship and work on the problem of that asteroid. McCoy is all like, heck no, but Spock says, you are coming with me. Kirk regains consciousness, and he stumbles up the stairs toward the trapdoor that dumped him into the chamber. The door opens, and he emerges just in time to be seen by a couple of natives who immediately think he must be some kind of god. He's taken back to the village, where he's still trying to remember who he is, at that point, a little boy who drowned is brought in, and none of the others, including the tribe's medicine man, can save him. Kirk busts out with a little CPR, and the boy lives. Two very important lessons here. One, even with amnesia, CPR knowledge is not affected. And number two, this is the kind of thing that will convince people who do not know better that you are a god. One of the women in the tribe, Miramani, makes this pretty clear by stripping Salish of his medicine man position and placing it right upon Kirk. Back on the Enterprise, it's business as usual. Scotty was giving her all she's got or something, but it put a strain on the old girl or something like that. They arrived at a rendezvous with the asteroid, and now they're going to use the ship's deflector shield to divert its path. No such luck. The power is used up, the lights flicker, and that asteroid is pretty much going to ruin the lives of those people on that planet. At this point, there's not much else that can be done, so Spock maneuvers the Enterprise in front of the asteroid to keep up with it and hopefully buy some time. Act 2. Salish, the former medicine man of his tribe, is not looking too good in comparison now that Kirk has shown up. Kirk is like the cool kid, the one who just showed up in a 63 stingray in a, well, in a pre-industrial village. Miramani has got eyes on him, and she lets Salish know that even if she wanted to marry him, she can't anymore since Kirk is the new medicine man. Later, Kirk gets a bit of information from Miramani. The temple, the obelisk, is what protects the tribe, and its secret is passed from one medicine man to another. But Salish is, slash, was the medicine man, and his father died before passing along the secret. But hey, stranger, you're a god, right? You won't have any trouble getting back into the temple when the time is right. Right? The tribal elder comes in and tells Kirk that the people want to celebrate him, but they don't know what to call him. Kirk struggles for a minute. K- 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 uh, Kyle? Kronk? Uh, Klatu? Let's go with Kirok. Sounds good, right? <laughs> Not just good, great if you're Kirok. Things are going absolutely great. Miramani is all ready to get married, like soon, like tomorrow. Kirok is pretty much thrilled at the idea. Back on the Enterprise, Spock is sure they can just shoot the asteroid with some phaser fire and break it apart enough so it's no longer a threat. He was wrong. Now the engines are burnt out. Scotty isn't happy. They can't even do repairs where they are. They'll have to get back to a repair station, which must be like a jiffy lube in space. Spock decides they need to head back to the planet under impulse power, just outrunning the asteroid by about four hours, and the trip will take 59 days. Well, that's plenty of time to work on some Vulcan hunches about what's going on. 
smoke if you got them. Kirok is getting all gussied up for his big day, but who should show up to put a damper on things? Salish. He's ready to take Kirok out with a knife fight in the woods. With one slash, he draws blood from Kirok's hand and the jig is up. Kirok bleeds. Maybe he's not a god after all. Act 3. Salish is overpowered, but he's none too happy about the outcome. In no time, Kirok is Miramani's husband. Let's check in with Spock, who hasn't eaten since we last saw him nearly two months ago. He's racked with whatever the Vulcan equivalent of guilt is, and McCoy is at turns barking orders and offering consolation. Spock is just ready to get back to work. Back in paradise, Kirok tells Miramani that he has been plagued by weird dreams about the giant lodge in the sky and faces that he can't quite place. No time to dwell on that, though. Miramani is pregnant with the god's child, so it's back to being giddy with joy. At home, Kirok is making himself useful, showing how he will dig an irrigation canal and will teach food preservation techniques. He's already invented a lamp for them. Can a communicator and phaser be far behind? The weather outside is starting to turn bad. There's a storm coming, or maybe an asteroid anyway. It's something that is dangerous. Miramani says, hey, why don't you go into the temple and fix the weather, since, you know, that's what gods do. Salish even shows up with a similar plan. Kirok, uh, now would be a good time for you to show off those god powers and fix the weather. Kirok is all, hey, I have a better idea. How about we all go hide in the caves? Kirok, you have to know your audience. This does not play well. It's off to the temple obelisk for some posturing and yelling and, well... Nothing happens. The weather does not get fixed. Act 4. McCoy catches Spock not so much resting, but more like deeply studying. He thinks he has cracked the code, though. The obelisk bears writing that isn't writing at all, but rather musical notes. It's a sequence that can be used to gain entrance, perhaps. As long as that groovy Mr. Spock bassline is playing, he can just bust out with a Vulcan harp to give it a go. He has also discovered, though how, we're not really sure that a race called the Preservers built the obelisk and they were the ones who scooped up so many humanoid or human life forms and scattered them throughout the galaxy to let their cultures grow. guess that answers a lot about Miri, the Iotians, the Vulcans, the Amenians, well, pretty much anyone who walks on two legs in Star Trek. Kirok is still at the temple, but he's learning a hard lesson. The people of this tribe don't take too kindly to a god who can't do godlike things like fixing the weather. In fact, they start hurling stones at him, and Miramani gets into the fray as she sides with her husband. The timing could have been a little better, but a landing party from the Enterprise beams down as Kirak and Miramani are taking a beating. The angry tribe disperses, Kirak has no idea who these strangers are, and he wants to make sure his wife is okay. Spock pulls out a new trick the Vulcan Mind Fusion. Please note that is not an energy drink, yet. And he is able to communicate with Kirok slash Kirk. In a moment, Kirk is back to himself. Spock explains what's going on, and Kirk reenacts what happened at the time he was trapped by the obelisk way back during the prologue. His communicator chirps, and the trapdoor opens. He and Spock find themselves in the control room, and in the nick of time, activate a deflector beam that saves them all from the asteroid. Meanwhile, McCoy and Nurse Chapel have been struggling with Miramani. Her injuries were too severe, and Kirk makes a visit to her bedside. She talks about a future with their children, and Kirk kisses her as she passes away. So, I hate to do this, but I gotta correct you on one thing. What's that? It's not just the chirp of the communicator, it's the chirp of the communicator and then Kirk saying, Kirk to Enterprise. See, I, I wondered about that from the beginning. I, I didn't know if it was just the chirp and then a little delay, or if it was the chirp and then Kirk, and that you know where that moment is. Well, it, it may actually just be the words Kirk to Enterprise, now that I think about it, because it's got to be a noise that, um, you know, that the people there can make, unless they've got like, you know, like a turkey call or something that sort of sounds like a communicator chirp as well. They or, might. Or a bird call, maybe, because, yeah, it's... Because when he flips open the communicator, it doesn't it doesn't slide aside. He flips right. open the communicator and says, "Kirk to Enterprise," and then it's like an episode of Scooby Doo. Right. Well, it's very interesting because it it could mean that in the preserver language, 
the the sounds Kirk to Enterprise actually translate to something very different, like, hey, can we open the trap door to the office now? <laughs> right, open up. There's an <laughs> asteroid coming. Kirk to Enterprise actually translates in the preserver language to, there's an asteroid coming, let's turn this puppy on. <laughs> right. Hey, I, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Ken, I know that you were very distressed about the appearance of uh, Scotty's hair. Yeah, love, uh, love, now, love Kirk's hair in this episode, though. Really? Okay, because uh, about two months' time goes by, and Kirk gets a little shaggy. Yeah, he does. But you know what he reminded me of? What's that? Uh, Star Trek Two, Kirk. Oh, oh, oh by yeah. the way, spoiler alert for people just discovering Star <laughs> Trek. Uh, Star Trek, rather. There will eventually be movies. Oh, yeah. And, and, and Shatner will be in them. Yes. Shatner will be in them. And there's something, about, there's something about his hair in this episode. I don't know what it is, but I was watching it, and I was like, oh, wow, look, he's trapped underneath the Genesis moon <laughs> Yeah, with that hair. With that hair. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's one very interesting uh, age-old question that gets addressed in this. Um, now I'm just going to assume that the captain's log is entirely in his head. <laughs> because, because we have the captain's log and we have the inner thoughts of Kirok just going on. Well, you know what I wondered, actually, and maybe you would know this because of your intimate knowledge of the history of every episode of Star Trek ever. <laughs> right, yeah. Did, did like, his amnesia and stuff not play well and so they added voiceover later? Because what it reminded me of was watching Blade Runner. Yeah, like, right. You know, how, like, in Blade Runner, originally, uh, Ridley Scott did not have any interest in sort of the Sam Spade voiceover. He was just going to have uh, Decker walk around, or Deckard yeah. walk around and, um, and you know, talk to people. And there would just be background noise. And you wouldn't hear anything. And you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't get the whole, so I went in and asked him questions, you know, that, that you <laughs> right, get in, right. in one of the many cuts of Blade Runner out there. And it kind of felt like that to me in this episode. Like, you know, Kirk wakes up and he's sort of stumbling around and he's dazed and he picks up his phaser and his communicator and he drops it. Yeah. And I, and I tried to watch it thinking, okay, does that read as amnesia if he's not telling me I have amnesia? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I don't have an answer for you about whether or not that got plugged in later, but it does feel plugged in. It does it, a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's very strange and very strange that they would address it that way because you could almost just have, uh, well, I mean, it, nobody on the ship knows what's going on at that point, but you could have a supplemental uh, captain's log. It would be out of, out of sequence, but yeah, I don't know. It seems like there's another way to address it. It, it feels a little weird. It's also possible uh, that there's no such thing as the captain's log and that's just something that Kirk does. I'm telling you, I'm de- it's just all in his head. It's and just then, whenever he's walking around, he's generating this thing in his head. And yeah. then everybody else does it when Kirk's not there, because if he comes back and finds out there was no captain's log while he was gone, right. oh, there will be heck to pay. Heck, I tell you, heck right. to pay. Right. <laughs> um, I tell you what is very groovy about this episode. Hmm. Did you notice that Spock has an extended baseline now? Like we had the Vulcan baseline there for a bit. And now Spock's got even more of a groovy bass line. You see, that's interesting because I actually thought that that was Spock playing the musical notes that he was reading off the obelisk. You're saying that that's sort of like just production music. I was thinking that it was Spock trying to figure out what's on the side of the obelisk and see if he could make that make sense. Well, see, you you had production music. Yeah. It was the groovy Spock music. And then later you cut to him playing the harp. Right. But I, I thought that that was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm just tinkling around on this thing. Uh, Never mind my bass line that plays whenever I walk into a room, but I'm going to put down the harp now. Yeah, right. I thought they were two separate things. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, learned a Scottish phrase. Uh, Scotty says, my bairns, my poor bairns. That's Scottish for children. Is it did really? You know no, I, I did not. Idea. No idea. Um, let's see what else. We, oh, I did wonder if the preservers hung out with the old ones. I, I thought that there must be a lot of very old civilizations that know each other that... You know, borrow a cup of sugar if they're out, that kind of thing. You know, actually, you know, what's funny is I actually, that's, that's interesting. So you put the preservers with the old ones. Mm-hmm. I put Kurok with rock. Oh, really? There may be like a whole, it, it, it may just be our obsession with what our little girl's made of. <laughs> or it may be that there's an actual tie here. Team 4 mm-hmm. investigates. Right, <laughs> right. We'll have, right. To get them. we'll have to get Team 4 on that, by the way. And what we do know about the preservers is that, you know, they went to the trouble of building this device that will take care of asteroids. Uh, you know, you have to wonder on other planets, 
Do they build them for other things like earthquakes and tsunamis or, or just maybe like uh, a rainy drizzle that would, that would affect traffic? I, I was actually wondering why they put them on a planet that was so prone to asteroid strikes. Because this is not the first time that this has happened. In fact, it has passed from from father to son, you know, for as long as anybody can remember. Yeah. Here's how you blow up the asteroids that are coming to destroy your planet. Exactly. In fact, I wonder if, like, they, they just love the planet so much because, oh, my goodness, it looks like Mayberry, doesn't it? Maybe what we do is we put some people here and we see what happens. And then, you know, like six months later, they're like, oh, that wasn't good. We should have really thought, you know, we know this is in like an asteroid lane. Tell you what, <laughs> let, let's go find some more people. Let's put them on the planet. Let's put them there. But let's, you know, let's give them a way to shoot the asteroids out of the sky. It'll be like a game. <laughs> it's that, that, that's the extent of their prime directive. I like that. We're going to transplant a group. We're going to put them here. We're not going to mess with their culture, but we'll give them the, the giant asteroid gun. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's like a cross between the game asteroids and the game missile command. Yes, right. It very much is. Yeah. 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 Um, and speaking of asteroids, so you've got 59 days, a little more than 59 days. So a couple of months before the asteroid comes crashing into the planet and yet, when Kirk gets trapped under the obelisk, it's about two minutes before Spock says, well, time to go back to the ship. And McCoy is like, hey, wait, uh, Kirk. And he goes, nope, we have to go back to the ship right now. Right. Uh, so the the hurry was because in 60 days they couldn't spend, oh, a couple of hours on the planet looking for Kirk, trying to figure a way to get him out of there? Yes, Okay. Dude, do I have to explain this to you like you're a three-year-old and I'm using a couple of rocks found on the, you know, near the obelisk as a visual aid? I mean, that's the whole (laughs) point. Oh, that might help. (laughs) That might help. That's the whole point, right? I mean, the sooner they get there, then, you know, the the easier it's going to be to knock the asteroid off course. Had they actually left when they were supposed to, they probably wouldn't have had the issues that they had. In fact, I, I go totally the other way on this. Yeah? Well, there are two things. I mean, first of all, Kirk's like... So we have some place we have to be in 30 minutes. Let's poke around on this planet because nothing bad could possibly happen in 30 minutes. <laughs> and so they go and they poke around and they look and they're fine. And they're like, OK, cool. So let's get back there because I know, Spock, we only had 30 minutes when we got here. And it's been like uh, 27 minutes now. Well, we got three minutes. Let me go over here and see, you know, see what could Nothing could possibly go wrong. And so then they send multiple search parties. They spend time looking for Kirk. And now you've got the issue where we are way past the 30 minutes. And so with each moment that passes, the asteroid gets closer and thus it gets harder to push away. I mean, this is is like Bill Nye, the science guy kind of stuff, except, you know, with spaceships and asteroids and obelisks that were left by somebody else. I'm yeah, but see, but you, you could leave a search party. You could leave several search parties because they're not necessary okay. up on the ship. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Out of the way. I'm with you on that. They could okay. do that. I mean, uh, Spawn could easily have said, tell you what, McCoy, you stay here and look for him. Or I'm going to need you in case something goes wrong in the ship. But tell you what, McCoy, we'll leave like 10 people because there are 430 something on the, enter- on the Enterprise, <laughs> right? But when they get to the asteroid, it's like, okay, Scotty, you keep the engines running. Uh, Sulu, you fire at the thing. I'm going to sit here and tell Scotty to keep the engines running and, and for you to fire on the thing. You know, I guess I could have spared like 427 of you to keep looking for Kirk. Now that I think about it, now that, now that we're here, yeah, right. that, was, that was probably poor planning on my part. I will say, though, when uh-huh. they lose the captain, Spock is in command. McCoy's inability to understand their situation is perplexing to me, as is his later inability to accept responsibility for the situation in which the Enterprise ends up. Mm-hmm. Spock should have nerve-pinched McCoy the second he started arguing with him and beamed him the heck off that planet. But, you know, he didn't. And I don't yeah. understand that. I mean, if there's one guy who understands the org chart, this actually, oh, I wasn't going to get to this. I wasn't even going to mention this. But this actually goes back to what we were talking about last week. Yeah. Any stronger personality is going to win over Spock. Spock should just say, excuse me, doctor, I'm pulling rank. We got to get out of here. And we got to get out of here now. Instead, yeah. he sits down. He grabs a rock. He grabs another rock. He says, OK, so in the time that I'm taking right now, this planet's closer to death, as are all the people on the planet, including your beloved captain. Do you understand? <laughs> Let me explain again in more detail. Spock, I think, would be the worst babysitter in the galaxy, because there is nothing 
more willful than a four-year-old who doesn't want to go to bed. <laughs> and Spock would just be like, oh, you know, I really wish I could get you to understand this, but <laughs> since I can't, all right, yeah, stay up. Oh, they let you eat Malamars too? Yeah, go for okay. it. Okay. <laughs> it is strange to see Kirk living among the space Indians. Some people call him a space cowboy. Then again, there are others who call him the gangster of love. To my knowledge, though, there is no one who calls him Maurice. They all seem very much okay with the idea of discovering this lost tribe of Native Americans. You know, no big deal. McCoy says they all look like Native Americans and Spock. He just rattles off the names of all their cultural lineage because he's an expert on that stuff. He knows exactly what tribes they belong to. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Navajo, the Mohegan, and the Delaware. Yeah, he's like, boom, yeah, I know this. Come on, McCoy, why don't you know this? I'm from Vulcan, <laughs> you know? For crying out loud. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is that the, the big pill you have to swallow here is about how amnesia works. Um, because and maybe I could have believed it if I knew specifically that the giant machine does something to, to scramble his brain. We're, we're led to believe that that is part of it. Um, but, but it's interesting what Kirk knows and what he doesn't know and how it comes back. It's like he doesn't remember that he's the captain of the Enterprise. He doesn't remember people. He doesn't remember all this stuff. But he remembers CPR. He, yeah. remembers, he remembers lamp building. And he remembers uh, irrigation through digging of artificial canals. Well, in fairness, he also kind of remembers his name. I mean, they didn't make up the name Kirok for him. I mean, yeah. you know, he was trying to say Kirk. He was trying to reach that. Also, he's still dreaming about... Interestingly, he's dreaming about, as you said, the lodge in the sky. But he's only dreaming about... Apparently, he's only dreaming about Bones and Spock. Because doesn't, yeah. doesn't he say two faces? He he does. Yeah. He does. Yeah. And we assume those are, you know, McCoy and Spock. We don't right. he doesn't actually right. identify them because he can't because he doesn't remember their names. But Exactly. Yeah. I, d- I did want to ask you a question. Um, sure. Yeah, speaking of the obelisk, does the idea of the preservers bother you as much as um, uh, who mourns for Adonai and things like that? Are you assuming that we are actually um, like like bipedal organism prime? And they, they came here and they grabbed some Mojave and some Delaware and, you know, took them elsewhere? Or, 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 or do you bristle at the idea that the preservers actually dropped a bunch of, you know, white guys and Native Americans and other races uh, off here on Earth to, to, it, the, to them not preserve us? But, you know. <laughs> right. It, it, it's a strange idea uh, because, I mean, here's the thing. In, in Star Trek speak, in, in Star Trek's internal logic, at least it kind of makes sense because then you're justifying why we've seen what we've seen before. It's like, you know, a few weeks ago, Brad and Circus's McCoy is like, oh, wow, they speak English. Like, duh, everybody has spoken English so far except for the Gorn. Right. And, and, and even then, his sentence structure was okay. You just had to translate it, right? <laughs> so so in, in this, it, it's it, at least they are building uh, a continuity there about why these things would happen. I still think it's a strange idea. And and not only do I think it's a strange idea because, yeah, I'm, I'm not – I think it's it's weird to, to build these theories of, like, ancient astronauts and, and things like that. Not that I'm saying that there couldn't be life elsewhere. That is not what I'm saying at all. Um, but then it leads into these questions about, well, what were these preservers who are not necessarily that good at preserving? What were they trying to do? They they come to Earth and they just decide, okay, we're going to pick up a few of these random tribes at this fixed point in time because we we like them. We're we're curious about them. They won't notice if we move them and we'll just put them on this other planet. And then what? watch them from afar well apparently not because they just leave them with the machine and and then they're nowhere to be seen again in case say like medicine man dies without telling the secret of how you work the machine so i find it i I find it weird i'm okay with it within star trek's continuity um but yeah i i I, 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 it just it, it made me ask questions about their goals well it is kind of odd but i mean that's getting hung up on something that's kind of odd itself i mean yeah they could be you know the things from prometheus 
they could be Johnny Appleseed. I mean, it could just be maybe they actually found humans on the planet Earth, uh, you know, however long ago, and said, wow, there is almost nothing else like this in the galaxy or in any of the galaxies, which, of course, is silly to us now because just about every planet they go to is like, oh, look, people who look like us and talk <laughs> like us. Right. But maybe when this happened with the preservers, they were like, wow, look at that because we've got, you know, like the nine legs. These guys only have two. That's crazy. <laughs> they should actually people the galaxy. So let's, you know, let's pick them up and just hurl them at planets all over the place. Um, I, I do think we have to address one thing about these particular people that we come across here. Mm-hmm. Um, I know very little about the Navajo. I know very little about the Mohegan. I know very little about the Delaware, so I can't say whether the wardrobe for this episode is accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, my feeling is it's not. Yeah. I guess I've always kind of assumed that anything I can buy in the Old West section of any given amusement park is not, you know, <laughs> spot on accurate, is maybe not the most culturally sensitive thing I could buy. Although there were, <laughs> although there were no tomahawks because, you know, these were peaceful warriors. It was just the kind of like a frosting knife. That, you know, well then, and why build carrying. that? Why build that when you can stone people to death? Well, you know, why are you wasting energy on tomahawks? We'll get to that in a second. Okay, I, but um, I don't know. We're also looking at a cast here that I'm guessing is mostly not Navajo, uh, Mohegan, <laughs> or Delaware. In fact, I yeah. researched them a tiny bit as best I could on IMDb, and you know, there was one guy, the guy who played Goro, I think it was. Um, mm-hmm. It was like, oh, because he looks the way he looks, he was often cast as Native American or Middle Eastern. And so it's like, okay, so, <laughs> so he's probably not Mohegan, uh, Navajo, or Delaware, but maybe he was. It doesn't actually get into that. From the hills of Tennessee. <laughs> so it's possible, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mostly it's lots of white people in orange makeup. And it feels <laughs> like it would be wrong to, at the very least, not acknowledge that. I mean, because, yeah, you know, okay. today we've got... You know, we've actually got the average moviegoer, well, maybe a little bit, maybe somebody who watches movies a little bit more than the average moviegoer, but you don't have to be Leonard Maltin to say, oh, there are great Native American actors. I mean, we've got Adam Beach, we've got um, uh, Graham Greene, I mean, and other people that I can't name, uh, Trudell, is it Trudell or Trudeau? Trudell, sorry. Trudell. Um, he actually has acted, and I cannot remember his first name to save my life. My point is, though, generally speaking, we're not just going to go to a bunch of white guys and say, slather yourself up because we need extras. You know, I mean, yeah, we, yeah. Would, we would these days maybe be a tiny bit more, uh, maybe be a tiny bit more sensitive to that. Yeah. Now, as to the evolution of these particular people on this planet, there is a fantastic thing that happens that I, that I know you were just probably so excited to hear. Oh, you have no idea. When Goro is concerned <laughs> that uh, Kirak is unhappy, Goro mm-hmm. says, oh, it must be ourselves, the way we live. Perhaps we have not improved the way the wise ones wish, mm-hmm. which is fantastic because that's a total Kirk thing. Like, like, you know, old Kirk, not Kirak, would show up and be like, these people are still living in tents. Oh, are you kidding me? This is good. No, no, no. This has to stop. Instead, uh-huh. uh, Kirak says, your land is rich. Your people happy. Who could be displeased with that? Well, clearly he's delusional. Yeah, James T. Kirk actually <laughs> could be displeased with that if he were here, but of course he's, he's nowhere to be found. Well, hey, even in the beginning, even in the prologue, when Kirk shows up and they're, they're taking all of this in, he's, he, he's impressed. That's when we have the discussion about the Tahiti Syndrome, and, and Kirk is like, wow, this is great. This is peaceful. It's like discovering Atlantis. It's beautiful. So Kirk is impressed with that because they're not worshiping a, uh, a robot god or uh, killing each other with machine intelligence or doing any of those other weird things that we discovered on either the Apple or Return of the Archons or Taste of Armageddon, etc. Well, well, aren't they, though? They're beholden to some idea that was not theirs. They, they live uh, at the whim of some technology that they did not build. And it turns out when the one guy, when the one guy who knows how to run it passes on without passing on that knowledge, they're done. Yeah, it would have been really nice if the preservers had just written that down somewhere. Well, it would have been nice if, I mean, I actually found myself wondering, is that a thing that the preservers, was that their idea? Listen. We're going to give you a way to protect yourself, but I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're not going to tell everybody. Okay, we're just going to tell you, and then you find one guy to tell. By the way, are you fertile? Because that's kind of important. And by the way, it needs to be a male heir, apparently. Yeah. I don't know where that idea came from. But, um, yeah. yeah, that struck me as, that struck me as kind of odd. But we may, we may circle back on that in just a moment. 
Well, it is very strange because, you know, again, it, it, the question becomes, well, what do the preservers want out of this? It's like we're, we're going to move this culture because this culture is worth preserving, worth studying, worth uh, growing, but we're still going to uh, almost maintain this level of power over them that we have this thing that will protect them and you kind of create a hierarchy or I guess exploit the hierarchy that's already there where you have some people within that tribe that have knowledge and some people that don't. Um, so it, it, it is it's an artificial construct. You know, you know uh, what, what is the old saying that, you know, as soon as you observe something, the observer actually changes the conditions of those being observed. Yeah. This anthropolo- anthropological idea that, that just by, even if it was a good intention, an altruistic intention to protect this culture, maybe the preservers thought, hey, this is a tribe that we feel like are in danger of being destroyed by whatever. We, we see the way that Earth is developing. This is a culture that needs to be protected and preserved, so we move them. But even by the, the most minor of meddling and what they do, they have, like I said, either created or exploited this kind of hierarchy where the medicine man has the information, the other people don't. You're preventing their access to that technology. Um, you know, you have to wonder what the goal is. Well, you're assuming that it was the preservers that did that. Well, I mean, I guess there is an argument to be made that they, among them, those in the tribe, after generations and generations, protected that information by only giving it to certain people. Yeah. But, but it seems like that's just the way it had always been. Well, I mean, as long as anybody can remember, but it really only takes yeah. one jerk, right? Yeah, right. I mean, what was it that led to, you know, the king of, of some country in Africa being the king of that country in Africa? Maybe they know if you ask them, but that's going to be thousands of years of, of story, you know, being passed on, passed on, passed on. You played the telephone game. Something might be forgotten. There, mm-hmm. I mean, we can, we can trace back the, uh, the, 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 the royal lineage in, I guess, the U.K. and Europe to a point. But, I mean, there has to have been some day where somebody was more powerful than somebody else. I mean, and it's not necessarily going to be the recorded history. There was just one day where somebody was like, they're looking at that guy, they're looking at that guy. Mm, I'm going to follow that guy. Do you know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. so, I mean, to say that this is something that was you know, set up by the, th- this is something that was set up by the preservers isn't necessarily true, I don't think. I mean, any number of things could have happened to make it. In fact, it actually seems quite a myopic way to do it because, again, who's going to go to the trouble of building a machine that can actually shoot asteroids out of the sky? <laughs> but then give it like this one, you know, this 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 pinch point of weakness. I mean, there's yeah. there's, there's one thing that could go wrong, or really one person that could uh, that could suffer. I mean, like, okay, so so uh, Salish, his father died before he could pass on that knowledge. Well, what if his father had never had a kid, or what if yeah. his father had never had a son? I mean, there are so many ways that this is just you know dumb. Or maybe Salish has fifty sisters. Right. <laughs> we don't right, know. Right. Um, I don't assume, well, maybe, though, that it's the preservers that did that. The preservers would probably be great as members of Starfleet because they've got this whole thing down of uh, meddling with a culture and then saying, like, hey, we should check on them and then not coming back to check on them. Yeah. Yeah, that part is kind of weird. But, we, you know, we don't know what happened to the preservers either. We We're don't. spending a lot of time talking about the preservers, though. I want to talk, I want to talk <laughs> about are. Salish. Okay. Let's talk about Salish. I don't like him. Well, well there, there's something to not like about him. There's yeah. a lot to not like about him. But yeah. I'll go with um, the fact that he is just governed 100% by petty jealousy. Mm-hmm. He won't mm-hmm. rest until he proves to his people that Kirok is not God or not mm-hmm. a God. And I guess what I don't quite understand on that is why. That sounds kind of like a Kirk move, huh? I'm going to... It yeah, I'm going to well, reveal, it does, <laughs> you know. It, it does sound like a Kirk move, but I don't understand why Kirk does it either. Salish has no way of saving his people because, you know, his father didn't pass that information on to him, as we, you know, talked about repeatedly. So now his mission is to take away the thing that brings those people comfort. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just because he's jilted. But even if that's the reason, because of that, he is willing to upset his entire civilization. What they believe is not true. So what they believe must be disproven or argued down, whether they want it. Or not, which, I mean, there's no reason to assume that they do because they're going to die. I mean, nobody is going to be able to save them. So what's important 
is for Salish to be able to stand there in the shadow of the asteroid and go, I told you so. <laughs> so, I mean, it turns out what I have a hard time with in this uh, episode, and this is kind of weird, uh, is evangelism, be it, you know, religious or anti-religious. I mean, standing mm. on the street corner yelling at me that there's a God, that hell is real, that everything I'm doing is going to send me there uh, is not going to draw me in. And who knows? When we're all done, that may be true, but it's not going to draw me in. Now, at the same time, standing on the street corner yelling at me that there is no God, that hell is a story told to scare people, and that everything I'm doing um, is fine, if I believe in either of those things, uh, that's not going to draw me in either. It may be true when it's all done, but that's not going to draw me in. And Mm. I don't really understand. I mean, Salish is just, well, Salish is Kirk, like you said a minute ago. I mean, it's the kind of thing that Kirk comes in and does all the time. It made me nuts watching Salish do that. And then you say, okay, so he comes in and he disproves, okay, so Kirk's not a god. So then you say, okay, cool, Salish, thanks for, you know, cluing me in. What else you got? Well, I got nothing. But what you were believing wasn't true. So that's something. Except in this case, it's not something. It's taking something away for no better reason than either it's not true or it's not true the way you see it. We call it freedom. And you'll like it a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's really... Or else. I mean, that's, that's the other thing. It's just, it's just the fact that Salish has decided something. And the thing is, it, like his whole line at the end of Act 3, Behold a God that bleeds. Behold a God that bleeds. Okay, well, you don't know God. <laughs> God may bleed. You don't know. But Salish has decided, and so now he's going to make that decision for everybody else as well, even when it has nothing to do with anything. I mean, it's, it's not going to stop the asteroid from coming. So really, all he needs to do is stand there and go, nah, 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 nah. like, well, you know, <laughs> as they're all about to die, because they didn't listen to him. Because if they had listened to him, they would still be about to die. Well, so maybe what Salish is missing is either an alternate theory or additional evidence. Because he, here's the thing. Yeah, I, I, I will go with you so far as to say that what it seems like Salish is doing is just the petty jealousy of Kirk and saying, he's not a god, end of story, I'm done. Right. What, what would have been more useful is to say, um, Kirk is not a god, and by the way, medicine men don't have special powers. What we have is this technology that we need to get to because that's what will save us. Now, he didn't have that information because his father died. And that's an unfortunate thing about the suppression of knowledge, you know, um, that whether it was something imposed by the preservers or imposed by the, the, the evolution of their culture. Uh, you know, you have the, the haves and the have-nots when it comes to information and technology. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll go with you that far as to say that he, he had no end game. He was only driven by his jealousy of Kirk. What mm-hmm. would have been great is if he were able to say, this guy is not a god, but by the way, we need to be working on a solution, <laughs> not just this guy is not a god. Yeah, and, and I will say, you know, after all of that that I just said, it might have been interesting if, you know, having been called out to handle the impending doom like a god, Kirk had found a way to maybe, you know, help the people there find a way to do what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, it basically show up with a solution. I mean, or, or, or if Salish had done that, that would have been fine, too. I mean, it would have been very difficult to do the way, you know, this episode was written. But there was a chance here to show... There was a chance here to show, the, you know, the power of people acting together as a force and mm-hmm. as a force for good. That that could either replace, supplant, help, augment the power of a deity or, or, or deities, Right. You don't have to you don't have to say, you know, oh, well, there's no God, but there's us. So it's cool. I mean, you can still go away if we all get together and do something. You know, you can volunteer at a soup kitchen and maybe you volunteer at a soup kitchen because there are people, you know, who need help. And somebody else may volunteer at a soup kitchen because Jesus told them to. Mm -hmm. And either way, you're both coming together to do something. And you're not saying at that point, well, I must believe in God or that guy must be an atheist because here we both are doing something good. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would have actually been neat if either Salish or Kirk had found a way for them to at least try something. But, you know, we, we, we don't know that. Now, uh, Kirk never said that he was a god. 
He no. never said he wasn't a god. <laughs> right. Mostly because I think he honestly does not know in this episode whether he's a god or not. Everybody's right. saying, well, you sure seem to be one. And Kirk's like, eh, you know, maybe. <laughs> the, thing, the other thing that really like, drove me nuts about this episode, and I mm-hmm. sound like I don't like it, but it's not that I don't like it. It actually gave me a lot more to think about than the first viewing as we were preparing for this. Mm-hmm. What's up with people? As soon as they find out that Kirk's not a god, or at least as soon as somebody tells them, no, he's not, oh, yeah. well, then we should kill him. Yeah, they, right. They just start stoning him immediately. And right. that, you know, that's how they want to spend their literally dying moments uh, destroying something because what they thought was true was not true, which, which was uh, sort of sad and, and a bit Springer-esque. Yeah, well, you know, I kind of at this point want a follow-up. You know, I realize that a lot of stories that seem kind of uh, that they have an unsatisfying ending tend to get addressed in the books you know and uh, in other places but it, it kind of lends itself to uh, what happens next um, we're left with Kirk and the loss of his wife and child um, but there is a question there about what happens to the tribe at, at large you know, Spock has cracked the code. He's figured out how this place works and why it works. So do you then violate the prime directive even more and sit down with the tribe that has just been saved because we use the technology that was granted to us on this planet and say, here's who you are and why you're here. And here's how this technology works. So all of you have this information. Now, whether or not you you know, ascribe that to a God or you maintain your uh, beliefs in God's whatever. Here's the reality of the situation where you are. Now do with that as you please. That's an interesting idea. I guess you either do that or you leave a security guard, <laughs> right? You have <laughs> right. a guy down in the obelisk, maybe every few months you change him out or maybe you build them like something on the other side of the planet with a transporter so they can just do morning, Ralph, morning, Sam, you know. Yeah. And then, yeah, back, you know, back to obelisk duty. Exactly. All right. And so then you kick back with your heels up and your great big keychain, watching four monitors that are showing every part of the sky in case there's an asteroid coming at some point. I mean, I guess those are really your two options. I would think that what you would actually do without addressing the God part, because it's really no business at the Federation, whether they believe in gods or, sure. you know, yeah. ultra powerful things or what. I think probably what you do is you sit a bunch of them down and say, all right, so you got this machine and it works great. And here's how we think the machine got here. If they ask, if they don't ask, then who cares? Mm-hmm. I'm going to show 10 of you mm-hmm. how to turn this on and, and do me a favor. As soon as I leave, I want each of the 10 of you to tell 10 more people. Right, <laughs> because right. that really seems to have been the uh, that really seems to have been the breaking point. The fact that there was one point where the whole thing could break. Yeah. Um, can we also address uh, the ending here very quickly? Because the, the, there's something about the end of this episode that um, that I love, and that also makes me cringe. The woman has to be left behind. She dies along with the child. So. <laughs> This is a TV thing, I, I guess. You know, you, you can't have the events of one episode affect or inform the next episode. Um, but this is also a character thing that Kirk just can't have any responsibilities other than his ship. They play this emotional beat at the end very sincerely. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you run the credits over that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so it... it, it gives it a very different tone. I, I was reminded of, you know, like the end of Charlie X, like the, this totally tragic thing or the end of uh, City on the Edge of Forever, this totally tragic thing that just sort of sits there. What was the one with the couple that was going to get married and then he gets killed and they can't? Oh, of course. Well, in Balance of Terror. Yeah, uh, it ends uh, that way. Uh, that was the corridor. Yeah, that was Balance of Terror. Yeah, that's so weird. I, I totally don't associate that with that episode. But yeah, yeah. I, I, that is an interesting that's an interesting production move I mean it does sort of give you the idea that okay so this is kind of going to stick with this character for a while now of course it's not actually going to stick with this character for a while unless someday somebody goes back and says hey let's make a movie about whatever happened then I mean generally speaking nothing actually you know carries from one week to the next but it is an interesting you know production move to sort of show the uh, to show that that you know could continue are we going to actually address 
the paradise syndrome compared to, say, this side of paradise? <laughs> well, do you want to? That's your call, man. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's not quite the same thing because there's no hallucinogen. I don't understand, though. Like, so Kirk is actually happy. And yeah. yet Kirk does say at one point, I feel like I don't deserve it. Yeah. I mean, is that not really basically that's Kirk in a nutshell, right? I, I mean, think it Kirk, is. Kirk could be happy anytime he wants to, but he doesn't feel like he deserves to be happy. So Kirk cannot be happy. And and that goes back to, and I know people get angry when I say this, but that goes back to what happens when he lands on, uh, like on the, um, oh, in the apple. Or mm-hmm. uh, there was another one. Oh, well, this side of paradise died. I just mentioned a minute ago. I understand people say, well, this side of paradise, they're under, you know, they're under a narcotic uh, haze. Okay, so fine. Take that one out. Uh, still in the apple, Kirk without all the trappings of Starship Captain. Kirk, basically without his memory, without his, you know, uh, mother issues or daddy issues or whatever it is that Kirk carries with him all the way through, without his, you know, need to to prove to somebody something, even if that's just to himself, mm-hmm. Kirk, stripped bare, yeah. is like, it's nice here. Yeah, yeah. You, you people seem nice. This seems to be going really well. There's food. It's gorgeous. I'm, I'm good. And it's just the fact that he thinks, oh, there's, there's something I'm forgetting, though. It's, I mean, that's really it. There's something I'm forgetting. That's what's niggling at him the whole time. Well, and that, that, and that, that seems to me, I mean, this seems to, I honestly felt like he should, like, find, you know, the maybe three remaining survivors among the feeders of all and say, listen, <laughs> sorry, right? Because <laughs> I get it now. And, wow, you guys really got... I handed a raw deal, and uh, yeah, my part is the dealer. Whoa, I'm feeling terrible. Old ones, amnesia, asteroids. What lasting impact can we take from the Paradise Syndrome? This is the part of the show that we say, this is the part of the show where we say, time to suss out the messages, morals, and meanings of this episode of Star Trek and whether or not it stands the test of time. John... Does does this episode hold up in your opinion? It got better every time I watched it. Um, this is an episode that when I first started watching Star Trek, I immediately discounted. And maybe it was just because it, it wasn't futuristic mm-hmm. or maybe it was Kirk's hairstyle, uh, which you are just you're all over it. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's because I, I didn't care about the relationship. I kind of dreaded watching this one again. I was like, oh, this is the one where they go to the Native American planet. You know, we, we've done the Nazi planet. We've done the Roman planet. Now we're on the Native American planet. Um, but I have to say that re-watching it and getting to examine Kirk's psyche a bit, um, as you just brought up, you know, the, the real question there is that Kirk's problem is that he doesn't deserve happiness but then that's also one of the things that makes him who he is and able to accomplish the things that he accomplishes. I think this is all fascinating. And even though I have a problem with the way they ended it in some respect, I also have to sort of take my hat off to them to doing by committing to the tragic ending. Um, there was an alternate version of the script where the mother and child lived and then you have a whole new set of questions. Well, how do we get Kirk out of there? That's certainly not heroic for him to just leave them. Yeah, Kirk's just a cad at that point. Exactly, exactly. So, I, I, like I said, I was kind of dreading this, but then the more I watched it, um, I, I liked Shatner getting able, being able to play something else uh, other than just Kirk. Uh, I liked that we explored his damage a little bit. Um, but I, I also feel like some of the moments here that are really important kind of get brushed aside. This is Star Trek that is more situational. The captain has amnesia. The asteroid is going to destroy the planet. Those are the two situations. There would be a much bigger deal made out of Kirk's decisions if this episode had been made today. The episode would be about that. It would be about the character and about how we deal with the repercussions of what happens so i think it holds up it holds up better on a second or third viewing um so yeah i I was actually impressed 
and you? Well, I, I had a moment of um, you and the Omega Glory. You know, <laughs> when we saw the Native Americans who weren't Native Americans, I was like, ah, come on. The only reason yeah. I actually brought it up in this episode is because, you know, for the exact same reason that we bring up sexism when we do. Yes, you can say it was a project of the times. Yes, it would be cast differently today, and they would probably be dressed differently, too. So I'm able to go ahead and put that aside, but I felt like it kind of had to be you know, had to be mentioned. And at first, when we saw that it was a bunch of, you know, white guys and gals in orange makeup, I was like, eh, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of, that's a little tough. Okay, that aside, there's bad acting. Mm-hmm. In this episode, um, we once again require Bones to be stupid, and I hate that. I yeah. hate when we yeah. require him to be stupid because he's not a stupid character, but he is sort of – he is the chameleon of the episode in in any episode. It's kind of like, okay, well like, – like the time Scotty hated women for an episode. Scotty right. hates women now. Why? Well, because we need Scotty to hate women. Okay, we need Scotty to hate women. Okay, we need Bones to be an idiot in this episode. Well, at least for part of the episode. And then we need him to be judgmental for the rest of the episode. So <laughs> can we do that? Absolutely we can do that because, come on, it's McCoy. He is, he is, he is Plato as yeah. far as the writer is concerned. That said, there was a lot of stuff about this that I, that I, I did kind of like. I, it's, not, it's not the strongest episode. It's not the worst episode. We keep saying that, but I think we keep saying that now, especially because we're in the third season and there are going to be lots of worst episodes. <laughs> oh, just you wait, my friend. <laughs> Maybe not worst, worst, but I mean, we may actually hit weeks where we're like, you know how I said last week that that was the worst episode? My no, it's bad. Maybe this one. <laughs> yeah, my bad, it may be this one. So maybe, unfortunately, I'm watching it with that kind of eye of like, you know, every time I push play on a season three episode, I'm like, oh, is this the one that's going to make me turn to drink? Well, come on. But I mean, is this the one that's yeah. going to make me turn to severely drinking? Maybe it's because of that, but it actually seemed okay despite its flaws. I, I do like sort of the thing that we get to play with. I know it's not on screen, but sort of the thing that we get to play with about, well, now hang on a minute, because, you know, at heart, you're still Kirk, but at heart, you do want to be happy. So, I mean, how does that inform everything else that he's done to this point and everything that's going to happen going forward? Oh, that's right. It's an anthology show, so it won't. But it does give us a lot to play with there, which is, which is you know, just kind of, kind of fun. So I, I said that this show is situational. Mm-hmm. Captain Moss's memory, the asteroid is going to destroy the people on the planet. Yeah. Do we bother to look for a message here? I don't think it was. That, I don't think it's that kind of episode. So I mean, do we bother to look for it? I mean, I had my whole reaction to just because you think you're right doesn't mean everybody has to think you're right. I mean, is that really a message? No, because nothing actually hinges on it. I just thought it was kind of a jerk way for Salish to be. Anyways. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely hit Salish hard. And, and like I said, I, I think that there's, I, there's a value to fact, the, the fact that Kirk is not a god, the fact that their civilization is about to be destroyed. Um, Salish is, I think, more just going for truth, you know, just the the truth that he is right and Kirk is wrong. Um, Why is that important, though? Why is that a good thing? Especially when you're talking about you maybe got four hours to live. Remember the Enterprise, the Enterprise got to the planet with four hours left. Right, right, right. right. So, so we know that the sky is literally about to fall, and how Salish wants to spend that time is saying. You bunch of jerks. He was wrong. I was right the whole time. Let's kill that guy. And then afterwards, settle in for, well, I guess three hours and 50 minutes if I told you so. <laughs> yeah, but, but exactly. What I said before is that there has to be a continuation of Salish's point, which we don't get because he has no additional information. So the, Well, there that, wouldn't have been anyway, though. I mean, seriously, no, is exactly. that how you want to spend the last four minutes, I mean, four hours of life? Like hearing that, see, it really was hopeless. <laughs> no, no, of course not. But I mean, Salish, Salish does not have the information. He has nothing. So yes, he is. He's driven by jealousy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, what the only thing that I am adding to that is, boy, it would have been nice if there was some other way for those people to work out what needed to be worked out. Yeah, that so, would have been great. Yeah, but, but we don't get that. Unfortunately, the other message here: uh, Kirk needs his pain to be Kirk. Otherwise, he's just Kirok. <laughs> I, I don't think there was anything wrong with Kirok. Hey, you asked that little boy who you know 
was dead for who knows how long before Kirok showed up. Uh-huh. Let Kirok be Kirok. That's what I say. You know what we need? And What's yeah, that? I'm finally going to break the timeline because we almost got through a whole episode. We need, <laughs> we need a little Thomas Riker action here. We need to, we oh, need to, we need okay. to split Kirk in two and let, you know, let Kirok stay there and do his thing and then you know, let Kirk go off and chase the stars. Mm, interesting. Well, is that what should happen? Do you have a different opinion? Do you think that Kirk should just be able to split himself in half and let that half go out and chase the stars? We'd love to hear from you. You can uh, reach us many, many ways. You can reach us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter at the handle Mission Log Pod. You can even call us at 323-522-5641. Again, that number is 323-522-5641. If you've got more to say, you can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Remember, we may, just may, use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Next week, oh, settle in for... A good time? And the children shall lead on the mission log. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Just for fun, you should go to the Washington Monument, whistle a bit, say Kirk to Enterprise as loud as you can, and see if anything happens. Be sure to tell me how that turns out. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 